Welcome to Voices from the Cathedral, a podcast from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City. Today, November 22nd, 2020, is both the last Sunday after Pentecost and an unusual feast day in the Episcopal Church. The Reverend Canon Patrick Malloy, sub-dean and canon for liturgy and arts at the cathedral, delivers a sermon for today's Feast of Christ the King. In the mid-1800s, the Bishop of Rome had control of about a quarter of modern-day Italy. Gradually, the rising Italian nation captured his entire kingdom, and they finally invaded Rome. And the Pope barricaded himself in his buildings in the middle of the city, and that was in a neighborhood called the Vatican. Uh, The Pope refused to leave his buildings until the Italian government gave him back Rome. And this went on for decades. So the Pope came to be called the prisoner of the Vatican and the entire business came to be called the Roman question. By 1925, it was clear that the Roman question would be answered in Italy's favor by 1925. In 1925, the Pope created the Feast of Christ the King. The next year in 1926, he entered into negotiations with Italy. And then in 1929, he signed an agreement with Mussolini to create the modern Vatican city-state. The Vatican city-state is about one-eighth the size of Central Park. So the Feast of Christ the King was created by a Pope who had to accept that he would never be a king again. As his dream of kingship died, a feast of kingship was born. Given how recent this Feast of Christ the King is and how deeply Roman Catholic, we shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't exist in the Episcopal Church. At least it doesn't exist officially. In our calendar, this Sunday is called the last Sunday after Pentecost, Yet people ignore what our calendar says and call it Christ the King. Even though the church at the official level doesn't have a feast of Christ the King, the church at the practical level can't resist having it. So now here we are, almost a century after the Roman question was settled and the Bishop of Rome created the feast of Christ the King. And look at where we Americans find ourselves. We have a ruler who has barricaded himself in his palace, at least figuratively, and maybe even literally. And you have to wonder if he will ever willingly leave it. And Christ is still the king. In the late sixth century, sometime in the late 500s, a Latin poet called Venantius Fortunatus wrote a poem about Christ the king. An English translation is in our hymnal, it's number 162, and many of you know it. It begins as you would expect a poem about a king to begin. The royal banners forward go. And can't you just see that, a war march of a king, standard bearers with their banners leading the warriors on horseback into battle. But this king is not like the kings in our mythic fantasies of kingship. 
This king is destined to be captured and killed, and he knows it. The war march leads to Jerusalem, where the king will be captured and he will be hung on a cross. He knows it will end that way, but to Jerusalem he goes. In the Psalms, David sings of a time when God will be king, not only of Israel, but of all the nations of the earth. And here's what Venantius Fortunatus wrote about this dream of David. Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the nation's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. O tree of beauty, tree most fair, ordained those holy limbs to bear, gone is thy shame. Each crimsoned bough proclaims the king of glory now. Our God, Christ the King, is a crucified God, and his throne is the cross. The prayer book tells us that on Good Friday, we might bring a cross into the assembly to be venerated. Four Good Fridays ago, we rescued from the undercroft a crucifix that had been in storage there since the fire of 2001. For decades, it had been in the narthex, but then in the cleanup after the fire, it had been taken downstairs and there it stayed. We set it up in the choir and we veiled it. And then when the time came for the veneration, we let the veil fall. And one by one, we moved toward the crucifix, that image of our crucified God, our suffering Jesus, Christ the King. In 384, a Spanish nun named Egeria went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and on Good Friday, she saw the pilgrims do this very thing that we do on Good Friday. But their slow march led to what they thought was the actual cross on which Jesus had died. And she says that they did exactly what I witnessed us doing in the cathedral these past few years. They fell to their knees before the cross and they kissed it and they wept. I saw us do those very things, especially I saw us weep. We came young and old, some in the arms of their parents and some in wheelchairs. Some I knew would not be alive the next time we gathered for the Good Friday feast. We were people of every sort, but all of us were the same at our core. And because of how my job lets me move around the cathedral during these great liturgies, I could see the faces of so many of us filled with wonder, filled with tears, filled with love as we drew near to the crucified King. And now that great crucifix stands in a bay in the cathedral's nave after all those years of exile in the undercroft. And if you were to come to the cathedral tomorrow, you would see person after person kneeling at the feet of the king. And I have to think, I have to hope, they will be kneeling there knowing that they are kneeling at the feet of complete love. Love even for us in our frailty and our imperfection. Love for this broken world. Love for this broken nation. Love for any person at all who draws near. As we disciples of Jesus move through time and space, 
Life invites us to reimagine Jesus, not because he's changed, but because we have. Jesus has always been sovereign, has always been a king. The Pope didn't make that happen. He just created a feast so we might notice it. Look at where we Americans find ourselves now. Our political die is cast, and we have a ruler who has barricaded himself in, at least figuratively, maybe even literally, and you have to wonder if he will ever willingly leave. And the feast we celebrate today, unofficial as it may be, asks us a question. Who shall we be in the face of this mess, we disciples of the crucified king? No matter where each of us stands on any of the issues, including the issue of how the current resident of the White House is behaving, how shall we be followers of the crucified king? And again, I find myself in the cathedral on Good Friday. The king who is our king is not the king of banners going into battle hoping to kill. The king who fights to the death. A king who traffics in power and prestige, in destruction and domination. Our king is a king of love, the king of peace, the king who goes willingly to the most shameful of things across, the place where criminals and foreigners die. He is God not far off and mighty. He is God with us. The next few weeks will be among the most fraught this nation has ever faced. And now, as in 1929, as it has ever been, Jesus is our king. He is our king no matter what our political views may be. And at least this we know. We are most alive when we kneel before him in gratitude for his love. And when we pray that only our love might be a fraction of his. In these difficult days to come, let us love one another as he has loved us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Voices from the Cathedral. The Cathedral of St. John the Divine is the Cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of New York. It is chartered as a house of prayer for all people and a unifying center of intellectual light and leadership. People from many faiths and communities gather here to worship together, provide meals for the hungry, educate our youth, and host concerts, exhibitions, performances, and civic gatherings. You can find us online at stjohndivine.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at St. John Divine NYC. That's S-T-J-O-H-N-N-Y-C. Check back soon for another episode.